Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Loving the world is an interesting topic. But before we get to that topic, we need to back up just a little bit in verse 12. Because in this, John describes the stages of life for the believer. You'll know from the beginning we talked about joy, fullness of joy, the knowledge of being eyewitnesses. We talked about life of forgiveness, of confession. Last time we talked about um, a life of behavior versus bravado. You notice that the phrase that we looked at last week was ho lagon, or the one who is saying a relative participle that means the one who is continually making these assertions about their lives. But behavior is the real litmus test for the Christian. It's really easy for any one of us to say hallelujah or praise the Lord. Can you guys say that hallelujah? Hallelujah. See, it was very easy. But to actually live a life that would testify to the internal nature of your convictions is the real test, isn't it? When you really start to put this thing to your feet and begin to walk, that's when you find that the difficulty begins. Well, before we talk about the, the nature of not loving the world and loving the Lord, um, he gives us a description of the stages of the life of a believer. Look with me at verse 12. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Now, if you look at this closely, it seems like he's just restating what he has already said before concerning little children, fathers, and young men. In fact, if you read it in the original language, it sort of has a feel of sort of a a song, a musical flair to it. But what I want to do tonight so that we kind of break it down and it's easier to understand is to break it into four categories. The first stage that he mentions here is in verse 12. He calls them little children. The word that is used there is technion, and it literally means little born ones. And It creates for us the idea of the connection of relationship of birth. Little born ones. We have four little born ones at my house. And they all come from the same parents. They may look a little different. A couple of them look really close to each other. But the truth of the matter is, I can safely say, every one of those kids in my household are little born ones of Carly and I, they are in our family by birth and by relationship. Now notice what he says. He says, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Every one of us who comes into the kingdom of God comes in by a real, spiritual, supernatural birth. 
No one enters in by intellect alone or none of us enter in because my parents were Christian. My grandparents were Christian. I had family members who went to church. I had an uncle way back when who attended church. Therefore, I'm a Christian. No, there are no grandchildren in God's kingdom. Each one of us who are here tonight, who are a member of God's family, are there because our sins have been forgiven us for the sake and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, only by His merits, and because of His work, we are now have been born into His family, a real, satisfied member of the family of God by birth. And just by virtue of that birth, no one can take that away from you, by the way. I can never be an unrow. I may go to an office and ask for my name to be changed, but by birth, genetically, I belong to the Rao family. They all look like me. They all have a certain amount of hair like me, and they have the same nose as me. Now, I know it's probably not very appropriate to bring it up right now, but I will anyway. Why not? Um, I had this nose... From the time I was eight years old, the same size. It seems to fit on me right now. So those of you who have a larger nose, you're going to be proud when I'm done with this illustration. But I was in a room at the age of 12, a a hospital room with my grandfather who was sick in bed. And I had my two older brothers who were very cruel, I might add, standing there, and my grandfather called me over in their presence, and he said, Son, if you ever grow into that nose, you're going to be a big man. (laughs) Thanks, Grandpa. Really. There is a family resemblance, and so there's birth, there's genetics. That's the first stage, a baby, a connection of relationship by birth. The second stage is that of a learner. He mentions again in verse 13, and you have it in your translation, little children. It is the word pideon, which gives us the idea of a toddler or a boy or a girl or literally a child that is at the age of instruction. It is beyond just the natural birth, but once a child gets to a certain age, they begin to grow and learn really from the time of birth on. Um, The word that is used there for know is gnosko, and it means a simple understanding of relationship and growth of knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 explains this. He says, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You know, Jesus said, let the children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In his eyes... We are very inferior intellectually, spiritually, even physically. Now, He loves us very deeply, but at the same time, each one of us is in the process of growing and learning. 
And so you have the stage of birth, but then you have the stage of growing and learning and experiencing God's love. There is a simple, trusting nature to our love at this stage. It believes the best and the highest. It wants to know all about the Father. I know my littlest son right now, his name is Hudson. He is almost five years old, and he's a very confident little red-headed lad. I love him, and he knows it. In fact, this last month, I have been unable to say anything that he has been able to respond otherwise than, I know Dad. I'll pull him aside, and I'll whisper in his ear, and I say, Son, I love you, and he'll look up at me and go, I know Dad. He just has a simple, trusting nature of knowing that I love him and I accept him. And he's growing in the knowledge and relationship to me. It's an honest love. It's a love based upon simple knowledge and it's a hopeful love. Then there is this third stage. It is the stage of power and passion. Notice in verse 13, it mentions the term young men. And literally what this means is those who are not completely mature in age, but have grown to a level of prowess and ability. Young men, young women, those who are at the age of life where you have strength and power. I remember this age quite well. I remember in my 20s, in fact, I'll call it late teens into my 20s, I could eat everything in sight, and I did mostly, and never gain any weight. I could stay up all day long, stay up late into the evening, only sleep two or three hours, get up in the morning and do it all over again and not be completely exhausted. There is just this tenacious, vivacious nature of this child, of this one who is gaining strength. Young people that I've noticed, I don't know if you noticed this worship team up here and this group of kids, but they are very passionate. And you know, guys, just for the record, it's very inspiring. But you're very passionate. You have the world in front of you. You are becoming leaders in this world. You're strong. Now, it says here that they have resisted against the evil one. And secondly, that there is an understanding and possession of the Word of God, an apprehension of the Word of God. And you know what, guys? Most people who come to Christ come at a very early age. Statistics have proven that. Most people come from the ages of 14 to 25. The, the probability of someone coming to Christ after that age decreases throughout the years all the way up into 70s and 80s. The likelihood of someone coming to Christ is very slim because it is at that period of life where God somehow gets a hold of your mind and your creativity and you're given a vision of this amazing life that you can live. Now, we're speaking of a certain age group, but right now in this room... We have young people who may be older in age. You may have come to Christ not many years ago and you're playing catch-up in your later years. 
And you know what? I think that is awesome. It is an amazing testimony to the power of Christ. But you have this renewed, vivacious spirit about you that says, hey, I'll do it. Anything. Uh, Go out in the parking lot and pick up trash. I would love to do that. I'm ready to do it. I think of very famous folks. D.L. Moody, Amy Carmichael, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Many of these folks were used early on in their experience with the Lord. I myself had that type of experience as a young man. I had grown up in church. My dad was a pastor. I came to Christ at seven years of age. And I grew up going to camp. I went to uh, mission trips. And I did all the things that a young person does. But one day, I was a house painter up on on a house, 40 feet up on a ladder. I didn't like ladders, by the way. I still don't. I never got used to them. But I listened to tapes throughout the day, and someone had given me a tape, a bootleg tape, from a service here at Calvary of Albuquerque. I didn't even know what a Calvary of Albuquerque was at that time. It was way back in the middle 80s. And it was a tape of K.P. Johannan. And his whole premise was that as Americans, we're prone to live as spiritual fatheads. And he talked about engaging ourselves and giving everything that we have to the Lord and serving Him with full gusto, without any reservation. And up on that ladder, I began to be inspired. And I thought, man, that is what I want to do. That's what I want to be. That's where I want to serve. Well, a couple of years later, I found myself right here, right at this place that we call an altar at the beginning of these steps, And I was speaking to a young pastor, a very tall pastor, very cool pastor, Skip Heitzig. And I told him, I said, man, I just, I want to serve the Lord. I want to go out and do something. I want to do something for Christ. It's all inside of me. It's just beating me. I don't know where to go. I need training. I don't know what to do. And I told him about my desire to go start a church up in Taos. And I love what he said to me. He didn't say, okay, look, you need to go to school. You need to go do this, this, that, and the other thing. He said, go for it. And when you get up there, call me and tell me what's going on. (laughs) And you know, here's the funny thing. I was dumb enough just to do it. Now, I'm not saying that to really (laughs) say anything about my life other than this. I know from experience that that period of my life as a believer was filled with desire, boundless energy, and and a readiness to go wherever God wanted me to go. And I went and made mistakes, mistake upon mistake, but yet at the same time, there was this ability supernaturally from the Lord to be involved in the work. I got to plant a couple of churches, and it was exciting. But someone recently talked to me, and they said, Hey, have you ever thought, have you thought about planting a church? Have you thought about going back out and doing something again? And this is 20 years later, 17 years later. And I can say I'm a little bit skittish about the whole process. My mind now, with four kids, a wife, bad knees, a balding head, and who knows what else ailments that are going on in me, I'm thinking twice about it, thinking, no, 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 wait a minute, I don't know. I think maybe we could raise up some young people (laughs) who have energy and ability who could go out and do wonderful things for the Lord. I'm a little bit skittish about it. 
The young are ready for the battle. They are passionate and ready to serve the Lord. Then we notice the fourth stage. And I call it the stage of wisdom. He speaks in verse 14. He just reiterates his statement. He speaks to the fathers or pateres. He says, because you have known him, I write to you, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Those who are fathers or mothers in the faith have a mature wisdom about them. And we all play a unique part in the role in the body of Christ. But I love spending time and have over the years with those believers who have gone further down the road than myself, who have done more than I have, lived more than I have, have seen more, suffered more, and who now at this point in their life can give advice and wisdom that is precious and sometimes even timeless. This type of wisdom, this type of relationship is built upon experience. You know, the only place that you can get experience is by doing it. You can't read it in a book. You can't buy it. It comes by actually applying everything that you know in any given opportunity. It's also a knowledge and a wisdom that is based upon testing by trials. It knows the highs and the lows. It understands the good and the bad, and I might say the ugly in life. It is not easily shaken in troubled times. It knows how to navigate. It is a lifestyle. It is a a standard of living that is not impetuous. When you are young, when someone says something against you, or maybe even your Lord, you're ready to strike immediately. But through the years, that whole passion and that that impetuous nature that finds itself in youth is tamed by experience and knowledge of walking with the Lord who knows how to navigate through very treacherous waters in a very godly lifestyle and example. It's a knowledge gained by years of following the Lord. You know, myself, I have walked with the Lord for 34 years. I'm very proud of that fact that God has given me 34 years in this life. And I know a lot more than I did 34 years ago. But I look to the future and I think there are still so many things that I have yet to learn from the Lord. And let me just make a statement here, a general statement to those of you who have been walking with Christ for years. Never underestimate the church's need for you and your gray hair. We live in in a culture that is so enamored with youth. We want to look youthful. We put on different colorings on our hair and different shots into our skin and situate ourselves so that we look as young as possible. And that's okay. It's okay to make ourselves more easily on the eyes. Right? I don't mind. In fact, and this is a compliment I hope to get points for later throughout the week. But I think my wife is more beautiful now than she was the first time that I saw her. 
And that's, that's the truth. But beauty on the outside and youthfulness on the outside is no match for the needed experience of those of you who have walked for years. This is what you have to give to us, fathers and mothers in the faith. Fathers and mothers in the faith become our examples. We think of Jesus and his disciples as examples. We think of great Christians throughout history as examples. And even more locally, we can think of the people who have touched our lives throughout the years have become great and loving examples to us as believers. It's invaluable. You're not only examples, but you become teachers. You become disciples, pastors, authors. You become people who pass on the truth to a next generation who is hungry and desirous of everything that you have. I can remember I was a pest, a complete pest. In fact, when I had an inclination in my mind that I might become a pastor... I didn't think it would ever happen, but I had this desire. And so any pastor that I met, I would make sure I got their phone number. And sometimes I would call them late at night. And they would go, oh, hey, Dave, yeah, it's good to see you, buddy. Good to hear your voice. Uh, what can I do for you? Can I pray for you real quick? Well, no, I just had a question about the ministry, and I was wondering what happened in your life when this thing went on, you know. But I was desirous of anything they had to tell me, and I still find that that is present within me now. I'm desirous of the teaching ability of the fathers of our faith. But then finally, we become leaders. Leaders in the faith that chart a course For the whole flock. A steady hand at the wheel. A strong, steady, confident hand. A hand that has been directed by God. So never underestimate your calling there. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, amplifies this truth. He says, The elders who are among you, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. In essence, we become like our Lord. Many years ago, um, we had a visiting pastor come to our house. It was long before my birth, so it was really many years ago. But it was common in our pastor's home to have visiting pastors come through town, and the visiting pastor would stay at our house. Well, this particular gentleman was of a very calm and steady nature, and he was advanced in years. And he stayed at our house. He preached on a Sunday. He preached on a Wednesday night and visited in fellowship, as we say back in Texas. He visited in fellowship with our family. And when he left, my older sister, who at that time was five years of age, she asked my mother, very inquisitively, she said, Mama, was that Jesus? <laughs> so as soon as the man reached home, my father called him and told him of the story, and he began to weep. 
Because he knew that there was no greater compliment that could ever be paid to a believer than that. Is that the life resembled that of the Lord at the end. All right. Let's shift our focus now and look at verse 15 of John 2. He shifts to some very strong language. He describes for us the various stages of the believer's life. But now the elder John, who has now been walking with Christ for over 60 years perhaps, gives strong direction and leadership to the flock there in Ephesus. Verse 15, he says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The phrase there, do not love the world, is in the imperative in the Greek. And the imperative simply means this. It is an expression of a command. And the command is coming from someone who has lived long and served long in the service of Jesus Christ, John the Elder. Now, we need to define here which world he's speaking of here. He is, first of all, not speaking of the physical world. We have this physical world that was created by God. And in the early chapters of Genesis, we find that he, after each portion of the creation, after each expression of his ability and his will and his divine creativity, we hear the statement, God saw that it was good. It was created by God. This world was meant to be experienced and to be enjoyed by humanity. Good things are to be enjoyed. In fact, there's no evil in any tree. However, those of you who suffer with allergies might disagree. I don't know if you've ever seen the little pollen uh, molecules expanded. You see that on those allergy commercials. They look more like little strange demonic balls of fire. They look evil. But nature itself, the beautiful mountains, the streams, the uh, animals and so forth in this world are morally neutral. That is to say, you're not going to walk into a wilderness and and all of a sudden run upon a deer and the deer looks at you and says, Hey, buddy, you want to buy a watch? I mean, that's not going to (laughs) happen. God created this world in a state of neutrality Morally, it was mankind that was given a choice in this whole process. That is the physical world. Second of all, there is the world of humanity or the world of human life. And we know that when he says, do not love the world, he is not speaking about humankind or mankind. Because we know in that very famous passage that we talked about last week, in John 3.16, that it clearly states that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, a very self-sacrificing love, so he valued the world so much so that he would give his only son for that. So we know it doesn't mean the world of humanity. And we also know that he has a commitment to seek and to save that which was lost. Even though humanity is in a state of rebellion against God, even though humanity is lost, 
the love of God extends to it. So it's not the world of humanity. Now, the word that is used here is cosmos. How many of you remember Carl Sagan? Probably none of you on the floor, but I remember he used to speak about the cosmos. A very interesting voice. I'm sorry I brought it up. I just remembered it randomly. I'm sorry. But the Greek word cosmos is used to refer biblically in this sense to the world system that is wicked, alienated from God, yet cultured, educated, powerful, and outwardly moral at times. This system is the system in which Satan is the head and the fallen angels and demons are his servants and all mankind other than saved are his subjects. This includes those people, pursuits, pleasures, and purposes, and places where God is not wanted. Which brings up an interesting point. There is a difference between creator and ruler. We know for a fact that God is the one who created it all. And yet, we are told through the pages of Scripture that there is an advent of this evil being, whose name is Lucifer or Satan, or the devil, whoever you want to call him, who has taken the role, in the words of Jesus, as the ruler of this world, of this present age. In John chapter 12, verse 31, we're told that Satan is the ruler of this world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we're told that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, We read these words. He says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So clearly, there is a delineation between the Creator and the one who is ruling presently in this world system that stays in a constant state of rebellion against God. The word aeon, which is the word there that is used for age, means life or breath or lifetime. And I love the very descriptive words of Archbishop Trench. He defines aeon as this. All that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, arms, aspirations at any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitutes almost real and effective power bearing the moral or immoral atmosphere, which at every moment of our lives we inhale again and inevitably to exhale. Satan is in charge of a world that is in a constant state of rebellion against God. Now in verse 15, he tells us that we are not to love the world nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Last time we discussed the term love. It comes from the word agapeo. And we discussed last time that this word is derived from a sense of value that is given to the object of love. In the sense to say that God so loved the world, and that is to say He so valued it, 
He gave his life for it. In the same sense, he's using this word in connection with us saying, do not value in this world or this world system in such a way as to give yourself for it in any way, shape, or fashion. And here's the reason why. He said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you get that? That there is a difference, he says here, between loving the world and loving God. The two are mutually exclusive. James chapter 4 verse 5 states it this way. He said, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or mutual hatred? With God, whoever therefore wants to be friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns earnestly? God's desire for each one of us is very real and very potent, in that He does not want to share the love that He has with us or for us with anyone else. I love the words of the Phillips translation of this verse in 1 John. He says, Never give your hearts to this world or anything in it. A man cannot love the Father and the world at the same time. The whole world system, based as it is on men's primitive desires, their greedy ambitions, and the glamour of all they think splendid is not derived from the Father at all, but from the world itself. Now let's be specific here. When he's talking about the things of this world, he's talking about two basic ideas. And they're laid out here for us. First is the idea of lust And the idea of pride. Lust in the Greek is a word called epithumia. And it is a word that connotes a very strong, passionate desire. And now it's not always necessarily evil. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, we know that Paul has an epithumia or a great passionate desire to depart from this world and be with the Lord. But in connection with the term sark or flesh, it is always used of a very negative nature of a lust that is destructive. Then there is the word for pride, aladzaniya, which means vainglory or empty braggardly talk that puffs itself off. You know, it's summarized in the song, I did it my way. In fact, in heaven, that will never be sung as a chorus of worship and jubilee. No one will sing that. I love what someone once said, God pickles the proud and preserves the foolish. (laughs) Now, the lust of the flesh is what I would call an appetite for destruction. The flesh that is spoken of here is the Greek word sarkos, which means that portion of the human nature that stays in constant rebellion against the things of God. That's why it's so often spoken of as the need to crucify the old man. It needs to be put down. The flesh is 
a built-in law of failure within itself, it's been stated, making it impossible for the natural man to please or even serve God. It is a compulsion, an inner force inherited from man's fall, which expresses itself in general and specific rebellion against God and His righteousness. The flesh can never reform, be reformed, or improved upon. It must be crucified. And we, my friends, will deal with this rebellious portion of our nature until it is finally put down and we are in the gates of heaven. We have a new nature as believers, but yet that old nature continues to exist and continually requires that we put it down. I heard a story of Paul Harvey How many of you are familiar with Paul Harvey? He told a story of Alaskan hunters who would go out hunting for wolves. It's a very gruesome story, so I'll warn you beforehand. But I believe it describes the nature of this lust of the flesh. It's a very opposing nature. What the hunter would do is take a strong blade, a knife blade that is frozen and then begin to coat it with an animal's blood and let it freeze and continue the process until the blade is completely coated. Then he would bury the blade into the snow with the blade sticking up, the sharp end sticking up, covered with the frozen blood. At this point, the wolf would come along smell the blood and begin to lick it and begin to salivate and enjoy it. In the process of licking the blade, it would lacerate and cut its own tongue. And by the end, the wolf will have bled to death out of its own desire and taste for blood. That is the idea that we see in Scripture of the lust of the flesh. Your flesh and my flesh, this portion of us that stays in constant rebellion of God, will do things that on the surface seem ludicrous. But yet in your mind, in your mind, if you believe that this would bring pleasure or satisfaction, you will find your flesh taking you down roads that you could never think of. And they're always destructive, leading us to fall. Second, we notice the lust of the eyes. I want what I see. You know, it's interesting in this country, we live in a world that is very stimulated by what we see. Wouldn't you say? In fact, I'm going to read you a few statistics that I believe are very telling about the particular culture that we live in right now and the danger that we live in. On an average, young men from 8 to 18 years old spend about 1 to 12, one hour, 12 minutes playing video games each day. 8 to 18-year-old girls spend 25 minutes per day doing the same. More shows are including sex-related scenes more often. In 1998, 67% of primetime shows had sexual talk or behavior. In 2002, it increased to 71%. And in 2005, 77%. Among shows with sexual content, five scenes are shown per hour. Overall, 5.9 scenes are shown in primetime hour. And 6.7 scenes are shown in teen shows per hour. Then there's the issue of pornography. 47 
50% of families said pornography is a problem in their home. In a recent survey of pastors, the top sexual issues damaging their congregation are first 57% is pornography addiction. 34% are sexually active adults who have never been married. 30% is adultery among adults. And 28% is sexually active teenagers. According to 2004 research, the U.S. porn revenue exceeded combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, which were $6.2 billion. Porn revenue is the larger than all combined revenues of all professional football, baseball, basketball franchises. The pornography industry, according to conservative estimates, brings in $57 billion per year, of which the United States is responsible for $12 billion. But now we're to the Internet, which is the new monster of the eyes. Approximately 40 million people in the U.S. are sexually involved on the Internet. 2.5 billion emails per day are pornographic. 25% of all search engine requests are pornographic-related. And 72 million Internet users visit pornography websites per year. It's astounding, and the number is growing. And here's the reason I bring up all of this junk and garbage. That the lust of the eyes that is spoken of here is this subtle drawing in of the individual by something that seemingly is enticing, but in the end brings absolute destruction and to, the, to the person who is involved in the activity. Beware what you take in. Stay away from it. It's dangerous. And third, we see the finally, the pride of life. The pride of life is an insolent, vain assurance of one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things in opposition and recognition of the greatness of God. All of these three things are coupled together for this reason. One, it is sin to reject the loving, careful, corrective, salvatory hand of the great God. And any way that leads from Him ultimately leads to our destruction. Whether it be our own fleshly desires, whether it be the enticing things and pleasures of this world, or our own earthly pride that would keep us from a humility that would draw us to the feet of the cross in Jesus Christ. Every one of them is blasphemous against God and destructive to humanity. And we have already stated that God loves humanity. He greatly values us. Man without God is a beast and never more beastly than when he is most intelligent about his beastliness. Let's look at verse 17. We'll close. Passing lust and astounding future. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Good thing to note, 
that this world and its destructive lusts are coming to an end. Hallelujah. I'm happy about that. But even greater, the one who is continually doing the will of God has a front row seat to eternity. You notice we we began this service talking about the one who says. We end this particular verse with another relative participle. I know you love grammar. I know that just blesses your heart. The one who says is ha-legon. The one who does is ha-poyon. And the difference is simply this. You can say all you want, but the one who does the will of God minimizes or abides in the presence of God forever. Doing what you know is correct allows you to be on the front seat of eternity with God, in communion with Him, in relationship with Him. Verse 17 in the Phillips translation reads as this. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following God's will is part of the permanent and cannot die. Where do you want to be? A permanent fixture in the will of God for this world and eternity? Or do you want all that you have and all that you've done and all that you are to pass away with the world and its lust? The choice is yours. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.